if you've got your Bible, and I pray that you do, let's go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, and um, thank you, brother. I think we left off trying to look and see here. I think we're ready for verse 14, I think is where we're at. There you go, okay. All right, so I'll tell you what, just for uh, sake of context, let's go up and start in verse 10, and we'll read to the end. I want to remind you that basically... Uh, Jesus has just gave us a vision through his angel and to the apostle John, a vision of the eternal state, the vision of uh, uh, basically all through revelations. We've had a vision of the coming judgment. We've had a vision of uh, the trials and tribulations that there will be at the, the end of the age. We've had a vision of the, uh, the millennial kingdom that those that... Um, are trusting in Jesus when He comes and destroys the evil of the world that will enter into the, the millennial kingdom with Him. We've had a vision of, again, the eternal state where we finally end up forever together with Jesus Christ. And we've had a vision of the, the gates, the inside the city, outside the city, um, and all the reward of that is to come in the eternal state. And so then in verse 10 is where we, we pick up tonight. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still be evil, or still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, and I am bringing my recompense with me, or my judgment with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. So that's who's coming. That's who's bringing the recompense. And we studied that. We'll go over just very quickly here in a minute what that means. But then in verse 14 he said, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Some of your versions may say who keep his commandments or do his commandments. Um, And then so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the gates are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price come. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. 
Amen. So basically we're coming to an end of the final revelation of this um, eternal state. And as John closes out the book, he tells, the angel tells John, don't seal up the prophecy that I've just given you. And you remember, you might remember from a couple weeks ago that we went back and studied that usually when God gave a prophecy to a prophet, He would tell that prophet to seal it up. He did it to Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, when it was written, was not to be given until a hundred years or more down the road whenever they would be exiled in Babylon and ready to return from Babylon. Um, In the book of Daniel, when Daniel was given the prophecy, uh, the angel told Daniel, seal up the book. It's not for now. Seal it up until the end of time. And so ultimately, it was supposed to be sealed up until an appropriate time it was to be revealed. And so in the same manner, we see here that this book, instead of being sealed up, he tells us in verse 10, the angel said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? So when the, when the angel gave John this prophecy, the fact of the matter was is that the time of the coming judgment is near. And so this is not something that he wanted to seal up until another time. Everything the believer needs to know about Christ, to repent, to survive the judgment, to, to not just survive the judgment, to escape the judgment, if you will, it is in this prophecy. And so he says to him, here's the purpose of me giving you this prophecy. And so if I were outlining this, this is the way I outlined it in my Bible. Verse 10 and 11, I wrote the purpose. The purpose of why we have this prophecy. And the purpose is that the time is near. And so because the time is near, and because we've been given everything in this prophecy to know... Because listen, if you've just been given this prophecy about the coming judgment, this world is going to fly apart, it's going to dissolve, it is going to be nothing left... The ones that are not following Christ are going to be left outside the gate in eternal torment, cast into a lake of fire. And yet the ones that are following Christ are going into an eternal state where the water of life is, where the tree of life is, where the streets are paved with gold, where our loved ones that have gone on before us are. And so if you hear that prophecy, it's not been sealed up, but you've been given that prophecy, then if you're a sinner, what do you want to do? I want to make the right choice. So if you're evil and you hear the words of this prophecy, you don't want to be evil anymore, right? If if you are filthy, then you don't want to be filthy anymore. So here's what he's saying. Since the words of this prophecy are not filled up, in verse 11, if you hear the words of this prophecy and you still choose to be evil, then guess what? Keep being evil. If you hear the words of this prophecy that's not sealed up, that anybody can see, anybody can hear now. And, and this is another thing. If it's not to be sealed up, that means that God means for us to understand it, right? Because how many times do we shy away from Revelation because we don't really understand it, right? But yet, I believe this is a verse that should tell us God means for us to understand it. He means for us to, to read it, to understand it. And so as a result of that, if you read this prophecy, you hear this prophecy, and you continue to be filthy, then just keep being filthy. But if the righteous are righteous, then keep doing right, 
And if you are holy, then keep being holy. In other words, you know what the future is. You know what the end result is for everybody in whatever state they are. So now you have the choice to be able to choose. Do I want to continue in my sinful state? Or do I want to walk in righteousness, walk in repentance, to walk in Christ? And do I want to be holy? So that's what that translation means right there. Now if you were to go on down to verse 12, we get the promise. So we got the purpose, now we're moving into the promise. What is the promise? <laughs> I'm coming soon. Everything you've just read about, everything that you've just saw in this prophecy, guess what? It's on the way. It's a promise that what you have just read, everything that you've just studied, it is coming because I am coming soon. And what am I doing when I come? I'm bringing my recompense with me, right? So here we have the promise that I am coming just like I said I was and I am going to bring both the judgment of the sinners with me and the reward of the righteous with me. That's what recompense means. It means that whether it's repaying, so it don't matter, it's not don't mean necessarily just all bad. He's coming to repay both the bad and the good. And so that's what he means here whenever he says, don't seal up the words of this prophecy because I promise you I'm coming. And when I come, my recompense is coming with me. And then he says, because you need to understand, who's coming? Okay, so you're coming. Well, who are you? Because if I looked at you tonight and said, all right, church, I'm coming. How many of you are shaking in your boots right now? What you going to do with your broke foot? Right? But on the other hand, if the one that says I'm coming and I'm bringing my recompense with me is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we went through all these. You can study this for yourself. I'm not going to go through it again. But if you went to Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, you could see what Alpha and Omega means. If you went to Revelation verse 1, chapter 1 verse 17, you could see what the first and the last means. And if you went to Revelation 21 verse 6, you could learn what the beginning and the end means. But ultimately, in summary, the Alpha and the Omega is the Lord God, the creator of all things, the all-powerful one. God Almighty is who He is. That's who's coming. Now, when somebody that is almighty and all-powerful looks at you and says, I'm coming and I'm bringing my recompense with me. That makes a little difference on how we receive that promise, don't it? And so for the ones that are doing evil, that's a promise that if you keep doing evil, I'm coming. I'm coming and my judgment is coming with me. However, for the ones that are living holy and trying to follow Christ in righteousness, that's another way you take that promise. I'm coming. The Almighty is coming. The one that is the first and the last. The, the living one is what Revelation 1.17 called it. The one that has the power of life. He said, I was dead and now I'm alive. <laughs> I am the first. I am the last. I am before all things and I will be after all things are gone. Everything that has life only has it because I am. That's what it means to be the first and the last. The beginning and the end is also the one who gives the water of life. He has the power of the beginning and the end. And so again, the point being is that we see a promise there given that 
He is coming with recompense, and the one that's coming is the Almighty God, the life giver, the one that has the water of life. He's on his way. And then when we get to verse 16, I'm sorry, skipped ahead. Look at verse um, 13, 14. (laughs) I'll get there in a minute. Verse 14, we have the reward and the recompense. So remember, he said, I'm coming with my recompense, right? And that means I'm going to repay the good with reward, and I'm going to repay the evil with judgment, right? And so in 14, we get to see what that looks like. So let's see who are the ones that get the reward. Well, in verse 14, who are the ones that get the reward? All right. Blessed are the ones that wash their robes. Now, how many of you have a version or a translation that says something different? What does yours say? Okay, so that's a pretty big difference, ain't it? I mean, does wash your robes sound anything like do His commandments? How do we get that big of a difference in this translation? Where does that come from? Anybody do any research on that? Okay. Right. Okay. How many of you have an English Standard Bible, an ESV? Do you have a number beside of the part that says wash their robes? And if you look down at the bottom of your page, or if you have a study Bible right above your study notes, in between your scripture study notes, you should see a number one there. Do you see that? What does it say? Some manuscripts say do His commandments, right? Here's the reason I love the English translation, the ESV, and I also love the New American Standard. Uh, Many of the modern translations I, I like. Because they, they put you a footnote in here that lets you know that some manuscripts... So here's the thing. You've got, let's say, I'd have to go back and do my research again, but you've got thousands, thousands of original manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay? So with thousands of original manuscripts, that means we should be able to get a pretty good accurate translation, Right? I mean, we don't just have one we're going by. we got thousands to compare. So we got a whole lot that we can, we can put them in computer programs and spreadsheets and we can figure out all the differences and what they are. And so we can get a pretty good translation. Well, that's the thing about modern translations today is we're able to do that. Well, one of the things that the King James Version did is that it went with... A, it, the King James is a word-for-word translation, but it is a majority text translation. Not a bad thing, all right? It's a good thing. The majority of the manuscripts actually say, do His commandments. Now here's the issue with that. The majority of the manuscripts come from the 4th and 5th century. How many years is that since Christ was? Okay, so the majority come from a 4th and 5th century. What happened is this, in the Greek, when you write out in Greek letters, wash their robes and do His commandments, they look very similar. I'm talking about 
just a few letter difference. That's it. So if you were to pull up a Strong's Concordance and you were to find these phrases, wash their robes and do his commandments, you would find that they are very similar in the Greek. So what probably happened is scribes along the way missed a letter, which again, are we are humans without error? No, absolutely not. All right. So it is possible that along the way that some scribe missed a letter, but the ESV and the New American Standard went with the earliest manuscripts, not the majority, the earliest. So they went back to the manuscripts that were as close to the 1st and 2nd century as possible. And the majority of the earliest transcripts, or probably all of the earliest transcripts, use the Greek phrase, wash their robes. All right? So the ESV, the New American Standard, uh, the Holman Christian Standard, the Christians, uh, the, uh, a lot of these newer modern translations went with the earlier text. Again, does that say that the King James Version is a bad translation? No, because at the end of the day, there is less than 5% of error when you look at the entirety of Scripture. There is less than 5% error from Genesis to Revelation. And none of that 5% affects any major doctrine in any way. So here's the thing about it. Whether you translate this phrase, wash their robes, or you translate this phrase, do His commandments, it doesn't change anything because the fact of the matter is this. Those that wash their robes, how do they wash them? In the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my... And so ultimately, it makes no difference. It doesn't change anything. It's still absolutely true no matter which way you translate it. But just for your knowledge that when you have an ESV Bible or a New American Standard or one of those translations, look for those little numbers beside of phrases, especially when you find, uh, like for instance, in some, uh, some uh, scriptures, you've got portions that are missing. They're not necessarily missing, They'll just add a footnote down at the bottom that'll say, some manuscripts include this and this and this. And then ultimately what they did is they went with the earliest transcripts. Instead of just going with majority text, they went with the earliest transcripts. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, we studied it in, in Sunday school here not too long ago. In John chapter 5, verse 3. John chapter 5, verse 3 it talks about a man that was lame and he was trying to get down into the water to be healed. Do you all remember that? And Jesus said, hey, do you want to be healed? He said, well, yeah, I want to be healed, but every time, I try, every time the angel stirs the water and I try to go down in there, somebody jumps ahead of me. Well, the ESV leaves out the angel stirred the water because what happens is that verse, they believe, it was not in the earliest, in the earliest manuscripts. So when you go back and you study the 1st and 2nd century manuscripts, the Gospel of John does not say that. All it says is, um, every time I try to get down in the water, somebody jumps in front of me. What they believe happened, as as time went on, some well-meaning scribes probably knew that the tradition of the Jews was that they believed that an angel stirred the water and that's why they were trying to get down in there to get their miracle. 
So in the 4th and 5th century, by that time, they had already started including that. Now, was it wrong? No, it wasn't wrong. It, it probably was the Jewish tradition. But the English Standard Translation, the New American Standard Translation, looked at it and said, we want to stay as close to the original manuscripts as possible. So what we're going to do is stick to the earliest translation. And then we'll add a footnote to let people know that there are some manuscripts that do include this right here. And so you'll see that in your ESV and in your New American Standard Bible or other modern translations. And you won't see it in your King James. It'll just have in there an extra verse that may not have been in the original parts. And again, here's the good thing. It does not change any major doctrine whatsoever. Does it change that healing story at all that the Jews believed that an angel stirred the water and that's why they were going down into the water? No, all it did was it adds some context to it. Now again, the thing about it is, we're going to see here in a little bit, that it is just safer, no matter how well-meaning the scribe was, it's just safer for us to not add to or take away at all, right? And you're going to see that here in a little bit. And so, But again, the reason why we have this warning at the end is because God understands that human beings can very well be false teachers, right? Human beings can very well add to or take away from the text. That's the reason why we try to stay as true to the earliest transcripts as possible. And we don't try to add nothing to it. We don't try to take nothing away from it. The Bible is our sole authority. And it is our final authority in all matters. Right. Well, but at that time, you think about 4th and 5th century B.C., the, the Roman Catholic Church was doing some pretty sketchy things. Um, I mean, they, they, they had kind of swayed off uh, quite a bit. And it wasn't until the 1500s that the Reformation began to take place, and then here we are today. So, so anyway, that, that's, um, that, that goes back to explaining the difference in your translation. So verse 14, the reward for those that wash their robes. And again... The reason I go with the wash their robes, and I think, and I'm just, this is my opinion, okay? But I do believe that's the way it should read, and I'll tell you why. Because if you were to go back to, uh, let me find the verse, 14b is uh, chapter 7, verse 14, Revelation 7, 14. And he starts looking at these, these people that are in the, the, the eternal state. Look what he looks and he sees. <clears throat> verse 14, And I said to him, Sir, you know, or actually start at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. In the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so that was their reward for their robes being washed in the blood, right? Well, when you go back to Revelation chapter 14, uh, Revelation 22, verse 14 again, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So there again, I think what you're seeing there is just another um, example of the fact that because their robes were washed in the blood, they are now rewarded with being entering into the city, into the presence of Almighty God. And then in verse 15, we see that this is the recompense or the, the judgment, if you will. So those that washed their robes got to enter the city, right? But then the first word of verse 15 is what? Outside. So now we're looking outside the city, right? Outside are the dogs. Man, poor old Cujo ain't going to make it, is he? Is that what that means? What's that mean? What does it mean? Do what? All right, so there you go. There you go. So the ones that didn't wash their robes and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus, they are the ones that are called dogs here, right? Now, let me give you a little context on that. So uh, if you were to go and do a study through the Bible on dogs, does anybody know how dogs were looked upon in biblical days? Filthy, lowest of the low animals, right? Now, we put them in our houses today. We sleep with them. <laughs> so, you know, you got dogs that are family today. But now, back in this day, dogs were not considered to be pets. Matter of fact, they were, they were strays and they were... Let me give you a few examples of it. Look at um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Now, just some context for this. There were people trying to circumcise um, Gentiles here because they believed that in order for them to be saved, even trusting in Jesus, they had to be circumcised. And so they were given a false teaching here, causing people to put their trust in their salvation in an outward symbol, not in an inward change, in an inward faith. And so in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And here he's talking about circumcising. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So again, here he's talking about false teachers, evildoers, people who would lead people astray from faith in Christ to seek their salvation by other means. And he calls them dogs. So they are the lowest of the low here, all right? Look with me, if you would, at uh, Psalm chapter 22.
Psalm 22, verse um, 16 through 20. Look what he says about, about the dogs. And this is Jesus on the cross here. But he says, For dogs encompass me. In other words, they surround me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So dogs destroy, right? Dogs tear apart. They mutilate. They're evildoers. He says in verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast, and cast lots for my clothing. All right, so that's some more context. Now look with me, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 10 and 11. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. Talking about the leaders here. They are all silent dogs that cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain. One and all, come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond that measure. And so again, when the Bible would refer to dogs, when they looked at dogs, they looked at the lowest of the low, right? And ultimately, what when we go back to Revelation, I'm not going to show you any, any other scriptures, but... When you go back to Revelation, basically what you find out is that outside of the city are all of the evildoers, the people that were the lowest of the low, the people that were evil and continued to be evil, the people that were filthy and continued to be filthy. Because if you'll go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to show you. This don't mean everybody that is, because we were all dogs, were we not? So go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I will show you just a little bit about that. And we'll start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 11. And you'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about when we get down to verse, uh, verse 9 through 11. But in verse 1 he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And so here he's talking about people that were, they were taking one another to court. And so he says here that, that if you're going to judge the saints, and you're going to judge angels, he says here in a minute, why in the world would you take trivial cases? Why wouldn't you bring it before the church? But then look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you, not, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And look at this right here. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And now look where he gets into. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous, still talking about the lowest of the low here, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So they're going to be outside of the city, right? Alright, and then look what he says next. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men practicing homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. If I were to stop right there, I would be out of the kingdom of God. I got no place. But praise God, it don't stop there, does it? Look what he says next in verse 11. And such were what? But what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, you quit, you turned away from your evil, and you chose to do good. You chose to follow Christ. All right? So now go back to Revelation 22, verse 14, or verse 15, and let's read that again. Outside are the dogs. So he just sums it up with the lowest of the low. And the sorcerers. Now if you were to translate this word, you remember what me telling you several times this word actually translates in the Greek? Pharmacist, pharmakia. So sorcerer here, we're not talking about waving a wand. We're talking about people that were giving others drugs for the purpose of uh, incantations and for purpose of um, trying to make contact with the spiritual realm and talk to the dead and trying to uh, uh, worship other gods with, um, with those kind of sorceries through pharmacies, through the, the, the drug um, inducing. And not only that, outside are the sexually immoral, Outside are the murderers, outside are the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So again, we don't have an exhaustive list here, do we? He just basically sums it up with saying dogs, talking about evildoers just like you and me. All right, And then he starts laying out for them, this is what some of that looks like. But the difference between the ones who are outside the city and the ones who are inside the city are not that you weren't at one time a dog, not that you weren't at one time an adulterer, a sexually immoral, homosexuals, um, all these sins that we like to point out. The fact of it is, the only thing that separates those inside the city from outside the city is what? They were washed. Such were some of you, but... Praise God, you were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only difference. That is the only thing that separates the people inside the city from the people outside of the city. And so when Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon and my recompense is coming with me, you can either be inside the city by being washed in the blood, and we're going to see here in a minute, He's going to give an invitation for people to come Come, you can be washed in the blood. You can be part of the inside of the city. Or, if you hear the words of this prophecy and you still want to be evil, then you know what you ought to do? Just still be evil. If you want to still be filthy, you know what you need to do? Just still be filthy. But if you want to be righteous and you want to be holy by being washed in the blood, then keep being righteous and keep being holy. Because He's coming soon. 
and his recompense are coming with him. Does all that make sense? You see in the progress here how this is all laid out? All right, now let's move on to verse 16. Jesus signs it. Because you know, when, when, when somebody signs a contract, they make a promise. I promise I'm going to do this and this and this. They sign their name on the dotted line, right? Well, Jesus is getting ready to sign his name. So in verse 16, look what he does. I, Jesus. <laughs> he just puts his signature on the pad right here. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So who is this for? That includes me and you, right? That's the reason why it's not to be sealed up. Soon as John wrote this, it wasn't to be sealed up. It was to go to Laodicea, Sardis, um, Philadelphia, all of the churches that, that he mentioned. And then from there, it was supposed to come to Wells Baptist Church, First Baptist Church, so on, so on, so on, all the churches of Jesus Christ, because Jesus sent his angel to testify to John about these things for the churches. And then here again, he just seals it up with who Jesus is again. I am the root and the descendant of Jesus, the bright and morning star. Now what does it mean to be the root of something? So Jesus says here, I am the root of David, and then I am the descendant. What does it mean to be the descendant of somebody or something? So you come from him. So here he says, Jesus says, I am both the one from which David comes from, and I am also the one that comes from David. How is that possible? He is the one that has been promised to save the world, to do all of these things ever since the garden, whenever God said, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. The one that they have been waiting on, the one the world has been waiting on, the one that is the root of David and the one that is the descendant of David, just like the scriptures said. And I could give you scriptures. I'm not going to do it for the sake of time, but you could find that in Matthew 22, 41 through 45. You could also find him being the descendant of David in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 17. So you could, you could look that up yourself and see that that's exactly what the Scripture said he was going to be. And then, of course, there's the Old Testament Scriptures that back it up as well. <coughs> Excuse me. So here we have Jesus just signing and sealing the letter here. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about all these things, all the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David. I am the bright in the morning star. What's the bright in the morning star? Anybody ever seen the, the last star shining in the morning? In the morning when, when the sun is beginning to come up and all the other stars have faded back in from the light of the sun. But there's that one star that's still shining bright. The bright and morning star. In other words, the one that outshines all the rest. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. So all Jesus is doing here is just reminding you I am Lord God Almighty. I am the giver of life. I'm the one that has the water of life to give to all who would drink of it freely. I am the one that is the, the root of David. I'm the one that is the, the descendant of David. 
and I am the bright and the morning star. I'm the one that outshines all the rest. When all else has faded and went into the backlight, nothing outshines Jesus. That's the point of it. And then we move into the invitation and the anticipation in verse 17. <clears throat> Think about this. Jesus has just laid out, he's testified to you through John, through his angel. My judgment is coming, I'm coming, judgment is coming with me, reward is coming with me, this is who I am, I promise you it's going to happen. And now we move down to what do we do with this? How do we close this thing out? As any good preacher knows, we can't close without an invitation, right? And so listen to how do we respond to this promise of Jesus. Here's the response in verse 17. The response of the Spirit and the bride. Who's the Spirit? Holy Spirit, the one that has been quenched, the one that's been grieved, the one that, uh, the one that has been guiding and sealing, and, and the one that is waiting to present you the guarantee of your redemption. The Spirit, what's His response to Jesus' promise that I'm coming soon? <laughs> Come on! That's the response of this Holy Spirit. And not only the Holy Spirit, but the bride. Who is the bride? The church, the ones that have been redeemed, the ones that have been washed in the blood. When they hear the words of the prophecy of this book and they continue to be holy and they continue to be righteous and they hear the promise, I'm coming soon, what do they say? What's their response? Come. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. It, it, yes, let, let's do this. Come. And then notice what we move on to, to next. He says, um, and... Let the one who hears say, come. In other words, everybody who hears the prophecy of this book. Why? Because you have the opportunity to be washed in the blood. So why in the world, if you hear the prophecy of this book, why in the world would it cause anybody who hears it unless you don't believe it? Why in the world would it cause you to not want him to come? So, let the one who hears the prophecy of this book say, Come, Lord Jesus. That's his response to it. And then keep going with me in, uh, at verse 17. And let the one who is thirsty do what? So he don't say come. Now he moves into the... So this is the reason why I labeled it the, the... I guess I went backwards. I should have said the anticipation and the invitation. The anticipation would be, Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit says come, the church says come, the people who hear the prophecies of this book say come. We're anticipating His coming. We're not just sitting back trying to build our kingdom in this world. We're looking to the skies going, Lord Jesus, come on. Come on. Come on. Let's, let's do this. Let's get to this place. And now I know this is a little bit tough. You know, I heard Mark Curley, he would, he would say to me um, that, that, that he didn't like it when people would, would pray for the Lord to come quickly. The reason he said that was because he wanted more people to have more time. And you can understand that. I got loved ones. I got people that I don't want to see perish that are not believers. And so, yeah, you know what? I want these people to have time. I want these people to be able to hear the truth like I've heard the truth. I want them their eyes to be open like my eyes have been open. I want them to see Him for who He is, to love Him, to, to desire Him with everything in them. But at the end of the day, I keep praying for that, 
and I can also pray at the same time, Lord Jesus, come. Because I know that I'm not going to make it come any quicker or I'm not going to slow it down. The Lord has already wrote the day and the hour down, and only He knows. And He is the one that will call out to His Son, Go get my children, and it will happen exactly when He says it, not a moment before, not a moment after. And so we can pray, Lord Jesus, come. And then look what He says. So He says, Let the one who is thirsty come. So if you're thirsty, what does it mean to be thirsty in this context of what we just read? And what would you desire? What would desire what? That's right. So desiring the, the new world with, the, with the, um, the everlasting marriage supper of the Lamb, the river of life. Uh, what did you say, Chris? To be washed. Um, con- so thirsty to, to be cleansed from evil and from unrighteousness and from all the things that I know I, I am. Uh, and so there are so many ways that we could look at this and understand what it means to be thirsty. But the point is this. If you hear the prophecies of this book, you know the judgment that's coming because of sin. You know the promise that Jesus gives for those that He's coming that are His and that are washed. Then <clears throat> if you're thirsty for that, guess all you got to do is what? Come. Come. If you're thirsty, come. Now I know we get caught up in this... Um, especially Calvinists and Arminians and um, uh, who can come and who can't come. You know, here's the thing about it. (laughs) I believe wholeheartedly in the sovereign election of God. And what I mean by that is I believe wholeheartedly that before the foundations of the earth were ever created, God already chose who was going to be. The Bible teaches that. That's why I believe it. Do I understand it? No. But the Bible teaches it. And so I do believe it. But I do not know who it is that is going to come and who's not going to come. So my job is to simply preach the words of the prophecy of this book and say what? Come. And let whoever becomes thirsty come. Come. And you know what? Some come and some go. Some remain, some leave. But at the end of the day, The ones that God has saved and sealed and delivered and washed, they will come, they will remain to the end. God will complete what He started in them. No question about it. And so, let the one who is thirsty, that's His response is that He should come. And then, notice what He says next. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So, if you desire the water of life, in other words, you desire life, not death, not eternal death, not eternal torment, not judgment, you desire life, you desire reward, then what is your response? Come. Come. And that lets me know that the invitation is open to everyone. And so even though I believe a lot of, a lot of Calvinist doctrines... I will tell you wholeheartedly that the invitation is open to whosoever will come. Whosoever will come, let them come. If they are thirsty, come. If they are desiring the water of life, come. Come and, look what he says next, come and drink 
freely. He says here, come to the water of life without price. So in other words, what does it cost you to get it? <laughs> it's free. He didn't say, come once you've cleaned yourself up. He didn't say, let him who um, has quit sinning in his life come, did he? He said, if you are thirsty and if you desire the water of life, just simply do what? Come. Come and drink freely of the water of life. It is available. And he is the one that gives it. I'm not the one that gives it. I'm just the one that gives his word to people. And he is the one that gives it freely. So that's the responses. That's the, the anticipation and the invitation. The, the bride, the spirit, and all who hear the prophecy of this book, they ought to anticipate that he would come quickly, Lord. And the ones who hear it and they thirst for it and they desire it with everything in them, they ought to come. They ought to come and that's how they ought to respond to it. And then verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, that's the reason why I started at verse 10, because I believe this whole section is about why we don't seal it up. Because everybody needs to hear it, and everybody needs to respond to it, right? Y'all see that? And so, now we've heard it, now we understand what the responses should be, and now he moves into the warning about this book and protecting this book. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. In other words, and here's the thing you have to understand. If somebody adds to this book, that means they don't trust the book, right? That means they don't trust it. And so, if they don't trust the book, they don't trust Jesus because he said, I, Jesus testified that I sent my angel to do this. I am the Almighty God, the giver of the water of life, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And so if anybody adds to this thing, then they prove that they don't believe God. And if they don't believe God, they cannot be saved. Therefore, all the plagues and all the judgments of this book are going to be added to them, right? And then notice what he says next in verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, again, same scenario, if you take away from it, that means that you didn't think something should have been in there. Now what, is, what do you think in the context, now I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, do you think it's possible that what John and Jesus are doing here is understanding that this letter is going to every church? You remember some of the things he said to those churches? Some of those churches are not going to be pleased with this letter, are they? Ain't it easy whenever somebody brings a charge against us or comes to me and tells me, you know, you're wrong in this? What, ha what usually happens with your flesh and your pride? Ain't it very possible that when people get this letter from these churches before they send it on to the next, they go, well, this is not really what he meant. Or this is not for us, or this is not... And so I really believe that that's what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with churches that receive this letter that you take it in its fullness from start to finish. You take it for what it says. You don't take it and go, well, that don't really apply to me or he wasn't been talking to us on this one because we don't this and this and this. 
uh, and start taking things away from it or adding things to it. Instead, you better take it for what it says because if you don't, you don't trust Him. And if you don't trust Him, you can't be saved. And so He says here, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away His share in the tree of life. And the reason I think he said that is because, again, he's talking to churches, people who are supposed to be saved, people who are supposed to be going to the tree of life, to this eternal state. And he wants, to know, wants them to know very quickly that if you don't trust me, if you don't listen to me, if you don't follow me, if you don't believe what I say to you, more specifically, Jesus, if you don't trust Jesus, you ain't going into that city, period. That's right. Right. You know, we, um, we see this in, in many other places in the Bible. I think in Deuteronomy, if I, did I write this down? Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 4, if I got time. Somebody look up Deuteronomy, Chris, Michelle, look up Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Donnie Malone, will you look up Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32? And um, Nathan Peterson, will you look up Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 through 6, please? Now, Chris, read out loud Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. So when Moses wrote his books, the first five books of the Bible, when Moses wrote the law of God, when he finished it, he said, don't add to it, don't take away from it. From start to finish, you listen to it and you follow it exactly what it says. All right. So Revelation is no different, right? All right. So that, that was the book of the law. Now let's look at some wisdom literature. Um, Nathan, or I'm sorry, Ken, give, go ahead and give me uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Did I say? Oh, Donnie, I'm sorry, Donnie. Yeah. Okay, so again, still talking about the book of the law there. Now, Nathan, give me the wisdom literature in Proverbs 30. So again, there's warnings everywhere that Jesus or that, that the Word of God is given to us. And all of these warnings just tell us the same thing. A true believer, somebody that trusts God, trusts Jesus, you trust everything He says from beginning to the end. All right? And so, and I don't even have time to get into it tonight. I would like to, um, next week let's do this. Let's come together next week and let's study how we got our Bible. Where do we get, I mean, how do we know that Revelation is the one that is the book of God? How do we know that Deuteronomy and that the books of Moses are the books of God? Where do we, where do we establish what we call canon, is what it's called, the scriptural canon. And that word canon is just simply means that it is a, a group of books that have been judged and they have been accredited to be directly from God and sacred books. 
And so how did we develop what is canon? What is from God? And what is God-breathed and God-inspired? Because remember, Peter told us, I think it was in 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, I think it is, he said, every word of Scripture is God-breathed. So what do we, how do we determine what is Scripture? Why is it that when Revelation's ended, the canon closed? And so that's what we're going to look at next week. If y'all, if y'all want to do some scripture on, uh, some research on that, just ask the question, how did I get my Bible, number one? Number two, can I trust it? Should we trust it? Ain't, that's a pretty good question, ain't it? Because, I mean, we would be pretty dumb to just say, well, I just trust it because somebody told me this is God's book. Because guess what? The Koran is also said to be God's book. That's exactly right. So we would be pretty wise to stop and ask the question, where did my Bible come from? Can I trust it? Should I trust it? And then, why is it just Genesis to Revelation? And so we'll look at some of those things next week and figure out how we determined or how it was determined that these scriptures are, these, this is what is scripture. And this is what God says, do not change. Do not add to this. Do not take away from this. The canon is closed. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And we will look at that next week. All right, any questions tonight? Let me finish reading Revelation 22, verse 20. <clears throat> he who testifies to these things says, Surely... I am coming soon. And then look at John's response to that. Amen. Amen. And that word amen just simply means this is absolute truth. You know, whenever somebody looks and says amen in the church, they're saying, I agree, preacher. That's exactly true. That is right. That is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. So John hears the promise of Jesus. Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. John says, Amen. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Amen. And his response to that is what? Come, Lord Jesus. And then, as most of them, the Apostle Paul and many others ended their letters, the, the last final greeting was, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. All right. Any questions tonight? That's right. Well, I don't think so. I think you could imply that, but I think this is where you get in trouble in using one scripture and not using other scriptures to interpret it. If we could look at other scriptures and see that what you say is a correct interpretation, then we could interpret that away. But because we look at other scriptures that show us that there's only two destinations. You're either inside the city or you are in the lake of fire. I believe that what we can say here is he's just saying outside the city. In other words, they're just not in the city. He, he don't mean they're just outside the gates. He don't mean that they're, that they're just on the other side. He means that they are not in the city. They're outside of it. 
So again, I think that what we have to do is take what the whole of Scripture says and apply it to this verse to come up with the right interpretation. Does that make sense? No? That's right. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not right outside the door. They're not right outside the gate. They are outside is what it says. You, we can. And, and yeah. I think, I think that that's the promise, is that the promise is just simply a reassurance to us that nothing evil will ever be able to enter there. Right? <laughs> well, and you probably won't. But, again, here's the thing about it. Here's my humble attempt at answering that question. I love my home. I love my home. I kick back in my recliner, and I'm talking about if people would just leave me alone, I'd be content there for a while. I could go out in my field and sit with my cows and enjoy my things. But you know, I'd love to go see the Grand Canyon because there are other things of God's glory that, that I have not got to experience yet. Other things that demonstrate who He is and, and His power and His goodness. And here's the thing that we have to understand. Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. And so there is a new heaven and a new earth. And I believe there are going to be created things that are going to be out there to enjoy, that are going to be um, equally beautiful in demonstrating the glory and the power of God. And yet at the same time, we have the very glory and the power of God in our presence face-to-face -face in the city. And so I believe that it's just going to be paradise wherever you go. Um, so... That's my humble attempt at, at answering that question, is that I may want to leave the city to go see God's Grand Canyon that's not cursed, or to go see whatever, God's ocean, there ain't no more sea or whatever, but you know what I'm saying. But I, I, I find it wonderful at a particular given time when it says when everybody except God that comes inside has done this denying themselves, everybody goes to their right hand in judgment. That's when there's a separation from the knowledge of right and wrong. And therefore, I don't think there'll be outside that gate after the souls of the right. last call. Right. And I believe, again, when we interpret Scripture as a whole, not just individual verses, but we actually get a, what do they call that, a theology of a particular subject, then um, I believe that's the right interpretation to come up with. The correct answer, Tim, is a lot of this stuff, again, we're not going to fully understand how the complexities of these things work out. Right, <laughs> right. But I do believe when we look at the whole of Scripture, we can definitively say that those that are inside the gate will never experience any evil or any um, curse at all. Those that are outside the gate will never experience anything except everlasting curse, everlasting torment.
Right. Well, and that's what I'm getting at is when you look at other scriptures and you try to get a theology of what eternal damnation looks like, um, that's some of what we come up with. <clears throat> and on the other side of it, when you get a complete theology of what, kind of like what we did with dogs tonight, that's what I mean. You know how we went through the scriptures and we got a good theology of dogs and what it meant for something to be a dog in that day and time. We do the same thing when we're trying to interpret scriptures. And sometimes we can come to the interpretation like, um, uh, like for instance, you were thinking in your mind that that must mean they were just outside. Um, Nothing will enter, right. 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 And they can't enter. Again, I would go back maybe to even to the story of Lazarus and the rich man because there's a great gulf fixed between the two, which we cannot pass from there to here, and they cannot pass back and forth, so possibly. When the door was shut, and, mm -hmm, the ones outside of the ark, they couldn't. Right. Yeah. Seems to me that that's the, that's the right way to see it. Yeah. Right, and that's what Tim is getting at. Yeah, I, and I, I see that. That's what I'm saying. I th again, I think the right interpretation is that he's just simply saying they can't. Nobody can because nothing, nothing evil will ever be able to enter there again. That's right. That's right. Still. Yeah, so you better calm now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. That's right. Right. I I don't you know again we don't think so because there's no tears that, but but we don't know. No. Uh-uh. Right. And that's, there you go. That's the point that I think he's trying to end Revelations on. You're either going to experience the best of the best, or you're going to experience the worst of the worst. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for your time and your attention. Hey, bud. How are you? <laughs> and, um... Remember, come back next week, and, um, and we will be talking about um, how we got our canon, how we got our Bible today. Can I trust it?
All right. This completes Revelation. This completes Revelation. <laughs> yeah. August of 21 is when we started. And so we are through it. All right. Yeah. <laughs>